The title of today's message is, Do You Want to Be Healed? I have several friends who are pastors, obviously, and they tell me that as they um, listen to my sermons or read about the things I talk about during my sermons, they say, you have such an interesting life because you never have to buy books of illustrations. It's like your whole life, all you have is illustrations from being a paramedic, a firefighter, a chaplain, and all the other different things I do. And one of the experiences I have had as a paramedic is seeing people right where they live. I get to walk into people's homes, right into their lives, and I get to see pe people as they really are in their private residences. And for years I worked in Walworth County with a pre predominantly Caucasian population. Walworth County is a, is a very interesting place because you have the very, very rich there and the very, very poor. With the very, very rich surrounding Lake Geneva, you have multi-million dollar estates in that area. The Wrigley Mansion is there, the Wrigley family from Chicago, and it's hundreds and hundreds of acres with huge mansions and, and just all this wealth and prosperity there. And you also see the exact opposite in Walworth County. You see the poor living in old cottages in an area called Pell Lake which is now a poor area. Pell Lake used to be a resort community where they had little summer cottages that people would come and stay in. Well, that resort collapsed and the summer's cottages are now people's homes. And they've added onto these homes with various things, a sheet metal and pallets and, and all kinds of ways of trying to expand these houses to be something livable for an entire family. And often you would walk into these houses and you'd walk past weeks of rotting garbage and you would put your foot right through a step up, up onto the floor and there were just very, very poor, almost third world type situations that you would walk in. I remember one time I went into a guy, his name, we called him Donnie the Diabetic because he called us literally for a while, twice a day because his blood sugar would drop so low because he'd be drinking. He'd forget to eat and his blood sugar would drop and he would have chickens that would be running around his house. In, in Pell Lake and it would be like kind of pecking at us as we were trying to get an IV inside of him and, and give his blood sugar back up for him. Then I switched jobs to an ambulance service that was based in Milwaukee on the northwest side. The northwest side of Milwaukee is predominantly African American and it's filled with gangs, filled with just this rank poverty, gangs, violence. And many of the homes we went into were very similar to those in the poor white area of Pell Lake. There were garbage everywhere, drugs in evidence, multiple children with different last names. And looking back on my experience, I have learned one undeniable truth. That many of these people that lived in these poor areas have no real hope. And having no real hope destroys the human spirit, no matter what ethnicity you come from. And that lack of hope created the same problems with drugs and alcohol in the mansions of Lake Geneva, to the cottages of Pell Lake, to the slums of the north side of Milwaukee. And having no hope always brings misery. And it does it regardless of your race, your economic condition, or your culture. And in the scriptural scene in John chapter 5, we watched um, prior to the beginning of this message, we saw a man that had no hope. And that Jesus is walking into a scene that is very similar to those I saw in my rescue experience. 
Now, the pools of Bethsaida were originally created to be a source of water for the washing of sacrifices that were brought into the temple um, through the sheep gates. Now, these pools were connected to a deep underwater spring that they had dug down and gotten this spring that would refill the pool at a re on a regular basis. And what would happen is that the or, um, people going in there between that and just evaporation, the pool level would sink, sink, sink until the water pressure underneath would um, fill it again. And so when it filled it again, you would see this bubbling and this stirring of the water that the Bible um, was talking about. You can see that today in things like Old Faithful Geyser and Yellowstone Park where it erupts every once in a while, once that water pressure and the, the steam pressure and everything underneath it builds up and it, and it has this eruption. But in the first century, they didn't understand a lot about geology or fluid dynamics and all that kind of science stuff. So a legend had formed saying that God once in a while came down and sent an angel who would stir the water and whoever got in there first would be healed. So that's the, the legend and the, the background of what Jesus was walking into. And because of this legend, these pools had become an area where the sick would come and be begged and asked for money. And you would have to walk through these, this area to get to the temple. And one of the reasons they had this was so people could um, support these people by giving them um, alms and, and handouts and money so that these people wouldn't starve to death. Now, normally, there are always a few dozen people in this area. But during times of religious festivals, like what was being talked to about here in this scripture, up to 300 um, people would be carried there and dropped off by friends and relatives to go there and beg for money to help support them. So obviously, anyone who was lame, like the man we saw in the film, Adaptation of the Scripture, would never beat the kid into the pool who might be there to help cure his acne. So this man is stuck in this situation. It said he had been there 38 years. Imagine that. 38 years trying to drag yourself to the pool and always being beaten by somebody else. you got to say one thing about this guy. He was tenacious. Because I don't think I would have lasted 38 days. He was there 38 years in this situation. And the situation had brought into him this mind of hopelessness, but he was still dropped off there so he could beg for money. But then the answer to his situation comes. In the King James Version of the Bible, verse 3 says that the pool of Bethsaida, it said that in there laid a great multitude of impotent folk. That's the way that the King James says it. And in 1611, impotent doesn't mean the same thing it does today. In 1611, it meant that a person who was impotent was unable to change or improve their lot in life, and that they were hopeless in their situation. The impotent man was about to meet the omnipotent man, Jesus, and that was going to change everything. And now to the central point of this message. The central point of this message and in this scripture was Jesus' question to this man. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? I want you to think about that question as we pray. Father God, I ask, Lord, that this question enter in and penetrate us to the deepest spot in our spirits. 
Lord, I ask, Father, that you use it to judge the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. Speak to our lives. And if necessary, bring change to very deep-seated ideas, very deep-seated sin even that might be within our own lives so that we can indeed be healed, Lord. And Father God, I ask this in your name. Amen. I want to begin by talking about what this man was experiencing. And what he was experiencing is what I would call the hopelessness of dependency. I grew up in a welfare home. My parents split up when I was five years old, and immediately my mom had to go on welfare so that she could support my brother and herself. My mom had no real marketable skills other than things like being a waitress or entry-level positions like that. So I learned early on what it was like to live in a culture of dependency, like this man was in this morning. In Kenosha Public Schools, they had a, lunch, a school lunch program. And in this um, school lunch program, your parents would buy you a lunch card. And you would stand in line during lunch, and they would punch out your day on your card. And um, that's how they knew that you had already prepaid for your lunch. It's either that or you had to bring cash money with us. And it was, that's just, you know, you don't want to give cash money to a six-year-old. They'll stop at the store on the way to school and buy candy with it. So they had the school lunch cards. However, if you were poor, you got your lunch card for free through a federal government program. But your lunch card was different color. And you had to stand in a different line to get your school lunch. So everybody in school knew who the poor kids were. Every single person would know who the poor kids were. To make it worse, whenever my mom and I, and I, my brother, went shopping, my mom used food stamps to buy food for us. And you know who always was in line? It was always the school bully was right behind you. See, your mom used food stamps. And he'd use that against you the next day of school. Another way our poverty was on display. Anybody remember when you actually had books in school? Before the digital age, you know, we actually had books in school. Well, the first day of school, what did we have to do? Put our book covers on our books. Now, the wealthy kids, they could go out and buy superhero book covers or, or movie star book covers or sports book covers, Packers book covers. Those were, those were huge. You know, so you'd put Packers book covers on your books. Guess what the poor kids got? Brown paper bag book covers, exactly right. They'd give you scissors, give you some tape, give you a little uh, instructions on how to do it, and you got to have the poor kid's book cover, the brown paper bag. And I remember some of those feelings, all this adding up. I remember some of those feelings I had about myself during this phase of my life. I remember that I felt... Like, you know, I'm just one of these poor kids. I'm, you know, everybody looks at me like I'm, I'm already in a hole that I'll never dig myself out of. And being shy and being introverted, being short, I was already a bit of a social outcast. And I just remember just, it just never felt like I had any hope in life. Like I was always going to be a second-class citizen. I was always bullied, always teased by the other kids and even some teachers who were saying, it, you know, that's just one of those kids. You know, they'll never amount to anything. We're not going to spend a lot of time with them. 
And for a very long time in my life, I believed what they said. I believed that I was a loser. I believed I was poor. I believed I was stupid and that I would never amount to anything. Fortunately for me, God blessed me with a grandfather who taught me the exact opposite of what they told me. God used my grandparents and the military largely to change my mindset from one of hopelessness and dependency to one of being self-sufficient and being confident in myself. And I was thinking of meditating over the scripture, I learned something about myself and about that time in my life is that I absolutely hate the idea of being dependent upon anyone or anything. In fact, it was one of my biggest roadblocks to coming to salvation is I didn't want to be dependent on anybody. What do I need to trust Jesus for? If I need to become pleasing to God, I'll do it myself. I don't need Jesus. What do I need Jesus for? I'll just be good. And I bring this up because what I've seen in life is that people who don't know Jesus fall into two categories. They're either completely dependent on something else to bring them fulfillment, to bring them joy, to bring them hope, or they are too prideful to want to accept help from somebody else. They always fall into one of those two categories. And I've experienced both in my life, both professionally and personally. And I've watched people who are otherwise smart, capable, and able to succeed in life instead choose to live in a state of dependency. I've seen this all the time, working as a paramedic. If you question it, if you say, you know, you should, you should you know, try to go to school, you should try to improve your lot in life somehow, they'll immediately point to their health or their situation or their past to say that it's not their fault. But because of this issue, they can't climb out of that situation. And there are people in that category. And understand, I am not speaking against somebody who has a legitimate reason to, to be a dependent person. I, I totally understand that. What I'm talking about is if Jesus were to ask one of these kind of people, do you want to be healed? They'd give you a a list of reasons that they can't happen. And secretly, some of these people have become so dependent and so comfortable in this situation that they honestly can't see living any other way. These are the people that have given up ever being well again. It's like they're living in a prison with gold bars, a comfortable bed, and some nice guards that take care of their every need. And any attempt to leave that prison is meant with anxiety and fear. It's becoming comfortable with that dependency and not trying to let Jesus bring that healing. And you'll see people want to live like this. And understand that, again, I'm not saying to say, because I know that there are people that, that have to be dependent upon other people. I'm talking about people that choose to stay there and don't try to improve themselves. And on the flip side, you have the self-made people. These are the people who came from nothing and and pulled themselves out by their own bootstraps and made themselves something. These are people that are very prideful in in exactly what um, they have done with their lives. And the idea of simply trusting in the finished work of Jesus is very offensive to them. And that's many times the spiritual condition of the wealthy. They just want to write the check like the rich young ruler and see how much this is going to cost them. But they don't want to really depend on Jesus and and the shed blood of Jesus to pay for their sin. And both the dependent and the independent have the same condition. Often they're lost in a poverty of spirit that comes from having their eyes on the wrong thing. But before we move on, I want to talk about another form of dependency. And there's an even deeper and more 
dangerous form of dependency, and that is secret sin. Secret sin is something that you run to for comfort, for strength or fulfillment that you know is against God's will for your life. You know it's against His holy word. You know that God frowns on people who do these things. It could be a relationship. It could be a form of entertainment. It can be even a misuse of food. It could be laziness or preoccupation with laziness. Or even a more obvious form of secret sin like pornography. And I want to let you know something and even give you this warning in humility and love as a person who has had their own issues with secret sin in their life. The Bible says your sin will find you out. And as a person thinks, so is he. In other words, the longer you stay in a state of rebellion, the more broken you will become until that sin becomes so obvious in your life that you can't hide it anymore. And in reality, there is no such thing as secret sin because God sees all. And eventually, if you stay in that state of rebellion, the Bible says whatever is done in secret will be shouted from the rooftops. But I have some good news this morning is that Jesus loves the broken person. Jesus loves the broken person. The Bible says that Jesus came to seek and to save them who were lost. That was and is his entire mission. He's a shepherd that will leave the multitude of sheep and find the one who ran away. Jesus is the one who will break every religious rule to go and lift his lambs out of the pit. Jesus will carry us on his shoulders when life has wounded us so bad that we can't take it anymore. He does this because he loves us and he meets us right where we are. You'll note that Jesus did not expect this man to crawl through Jerusalem trying to find him. Jesus came to right where he was. And I want you to think about that, this atmosphere that Jesus is walking into. He's walking into sick people, and very sick people. There were probably there with lep- people there with leprosy. It's something that would literally eat the skin and tissue right off your body. These are people that couldn't move. These are people that probably had to go to the bathroom right where they were at. So he is walking in to all that sickness, all that stench, all that grossness. And Jesus not only did that for him, he does that with us because that's what sin is. It's spiritual sickness. It's a spiritual stench and spiritual grossness that wants to rob us from our present joy and our future reward in heaven. In other words, Jesus comes to us and he touches us in all of our nastiness. That's our Savior. He who is without sin became sin for us. And that's one of the most beautiful things about this biblical account. The story of the paralytic might raise a question in our mind. Why does God allow us to go through sickness and poverty, dependence and disease? And I want to refer to John chapter 9 for a moment. John chapter 9 describes the disciples in the middle of a theological argument with each other regarding a man that had been born blind. And the argument centered around a question, why did this man's blindness, or where did this man's blindness come from? Did it come from something that he did or something that his parents did? You see, the disciples came from a religious system that was more akin to Hinduism that believes in in karma 
that you got exactly what you deserved at all times. So that God must, that this guy must have done something, his parents must have did something, and God immediately judged that sin with this physical illness of blindness. And if, that's why the people that Jesus surrounding himself with are arguing, and they're arguing and not even bothering to help this person. They're, they're, they're created, just treating him like an object lesson and saying, well, God, you know, did his parents, or Jesus, did his parents sin or did he sin? Why, why is he like this? And it sounds like some churches, some of us would rather argue about whether our interpretation of the Bible is right rather than roll up our sleeves and do the work of the kingdom. And Jesus interrupts the argument and refocuses the disciples on the central point of God's love and sovereignty for this man. This man was not born blind for any reason other than to show God's glory. What does that mean? It means that our God is so awesome, so loving, and so in control that even within our bad and horrible rebellion, within exercising our free will, <coughs> or the free will choices of others directly affecting us, that God is always, 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 always loving and guiding us through every situation. What about our current rebellion and sin? He's always guiding us. Always means always. For we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That means all things. What about the really stupid thing that I did last week? All things. What about that person who tried to destroy my life and my enemies? All things. What about when I'm a nasty, no good, cheating, rotten fool? All things. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now hear me, I don't say that God winks at our sin. I don't say that God likes it when we sin. God hates our sin. Our Father hates our sin because it limits his ability to bless us. It limits his ability to, to use us in this world. And if it left unchecked, it could cause us to be eternally separated from him. But our God is so great that he can use something that he even absolutely hates to humble us and form us into the image of Christ. He can use us even with our mistakes. And that is exactly why Jesus' question, do you want to be healed, is so challenging to us. Because it challenges us about switching dependencies. Our spiritual healing is dependent upon us taking a leap of faith that makes us completely and utterly dependent upon God instead of the things of this world that we try to cling so hard to. In the book of Revelation, it says that in the final days, God will call the church to make herself ready. And that is why this is so important to us this morning. Because we are in these last days. And God is calling out to his church to be ready. Because the trumpet is going to blow soon. And he's calling us to come out of this world. 
And he uses this imagery of a bride spending hours upon hours upon hours of doing her hair, doing her nails, doing her makeup, squeezing into the dress for that one moment when she is presented to her future husband as this radiant bride. God's calling us into that kind of preparation right now. He is asking us, do you want to be healed? Because the healer is in the house this morning. And it's not just a physical healing, it's the spiritual healing that the church needs right now. It needs to come out from all of these things. From being dependent upon things that God calls sin and being totally and completely dependent upon Him instead. God wants to present us to Jesus as a radiant bride. Those who have made themselves ready. Many of us are asking why it seems like it's getting so hard to be a Christian. Why are we in this constant struggle? How, why does it seem like the world wants to head, head, run headlong into destruction? And I'm looking, I, 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 God has just kind of shown me this picture. He said, if you really want to appreciate light, you have to allow everything else to grow dark. For example, if I had just a little cigarette lighter up here and I lit it for you, you'd see this little candlelight. But if I made it completely pitch dark in this room where you couldn't see anything and flick that lighter again, that light would be the brightest thing you've ever you've seen in a while. You would even, as a matter of fact, if you had been sitting in this darkness for a long time and I flicked that lighter on, you'd go like this. It would be shocking because it would be so bright to you. That is why we as God's children will shine the brightest in these last days, if we remain faithful to him, if we allow Jesus to heal us of all of these dependency on things that don't belong to him. Do you want to be healed? Finally, we, when we get to the place that God wants us, healed and made well in Jesus' name and completely dependent upon him, we need to hold on to that. Verse 14 of John chapter 5 says, Later Jesus found him in the temple and he said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now historically, people have taken that to say, well, this man's paralysis was caused by a past sin. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But Jesus is saying something much deeper to him here. Another way of saying this that would make a little bit more sense to our 21st century brain. The word sin in the New Testament means to literally miss the mark. It's like you are an archer shooting at a target and you totally miss the target. Somebody would yell sin. That's, that's, that's the, the mental picture of the word sin in the, in the uh, New Testament within the Bible. What Jesus is saying here is, keep watch over yourself and don't let yourself get roped back into dependency of the things of this world. Or even self-sufficiency, which is another dependency. It's dependency on yourself instead of God. He said you're missing the mark if you get into that again. And the thing is, is that when we backslide and fall back into whatever sin we are involved with, whatever is entangling us, it's not like we start over with that sin, we pick up where we left off. Let me illustrate this. Drug addiction. Not too many people go out and pick up a needle and shoot heroin immediately. 
They start out with, with pills. They start out with marijuana. They start out with alcohol. They start out with some other type of, of drug that gets them to the point of someday chasing a further high and chasing a further high until one day they're either smoking it or shooting it into their arm. And when a person gets healed from this, when they, when they kick this dependency, they always have to worry about going back to that. It's not like they're going to start the process all over again. If they fall, they're going to fall right back into the heroin again. And sin is the same way. Sin is the same way because when we go back to our sin, we pick up right where we left off. So instead of starting like all the way over there with little sin, we jump right back into the big sin and the um, consequences of that big sin will lead us darker into darker places much faster than it would then. That is why Jesus is saying, be careful that you don't keep sinning because it's going to destroy you that much faster. Because you're starting where you left off, not starting over again with it. It's going to destroy you that much faster. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're stuck somewhere down that rabbit trail of sin and you don't want to get out or don't know how to get out. Jesus is here for you and he's asking you, do you want to be healed? Others of you might be tempted to return to that life of dependency toward the things that God said are not good to you. Jesus is asking you, do you want to be healed? If that's you, you need to turn and repent to Jesus. Or maybe you're here and you have never taken that step to surrender your life to Jesus. Today is a great day for that. The Bible says that now is an acceptable time. Today is a day of salvation for you. Because Jesus loves the broken, but he doesn't want to leave you broken. He wants you to be healed. But you have to want to be healed. You have to be willing to turn to him and say, Jesus, take it all, and he will heal you.